Matthew chapter 9, excuse me, Matthew chapter 24, verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. In chapter 24, Jesus predicts the future destruction of the Jewish temple. Opposite the temple, in the place known as the Mount of Olives, the disciples of Jesus ask him privately, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age in verse 3? Jesus answers them by giving nine signs in verses 5 through 14. Jesus says these signs are the beginning of the end. It, it says the signs are the beginning, not the end of sorrows in verse 8. When Jesus gives the ninth sign, global evangelism, he says, quote, and then shall the end come, verse 14. The Lord Jesus prefaces his comments with a strong warning to guard against deception in verse 5, that many will engage in a campaign of deception, deceiving not a few, look what it says, it, many in verse 5. The signs included false Christs or Messiahs in verse 5, global violence in verse 6, natural, physical disasters in verse 7. Now in brief, we're going to look at six more signs Jesus predicts profound religious persecution in verse 9. A coming apostasy, a profound betrayal and division in verse 10. The ever-increasing rise of false leaders with a false gospel offering a false hope in verse 11. A great falling away, the proliferation or the increase of sin where more and more people will celebrate sin and mourn righteousness instead of celebrate righteousness and mourn sin. The perseverance and salvation of some in verse 13 and then global evangelism in verse 14. So look at verse 9 quickly. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Jesus describes a time of affliction. If the present age is any indication of the future religious persecutions, they're going to continue to grow. In the past, historians noted 10 severe persecutions in the early church from the time of Nero in 66 to 68 AD to the time of Diocletian in 303 
AD. That word translated tribulation can also be translated affliction. And the word quite literally means affliction under pressure. The Greek term when it's translated into Latin is tribulum. That which we get our word tribulation from. The tribulum in, in, in Roman and Latin agricultural use was a gigantic log that was studded with uh, spikes that you would use in grain fields to separate the chaff um, from the wheat or the grain from the husks. So the term came to mean profound Pressure, pre pressing, anguish, hints affliction under pressure. The persecution takes the form of afflictions, murder, and note, hatred by the nations. All according to Jesus for my name's sake. He's not talking about affliction and persecution that comes from people being weird or stupid or antagonistic. He's talking about a specific kind of a persecution that comes when people identify themselves with Jesus, love Jesus, follow Jesus, embrace Jesus. As early as the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 28, verse 22, we read, quote, concerning this sect, we know that everywhere it's spoken against unquote so early on there was profound problems opposition and difficulty so the expression for my name's sake means the source of affliction and the source of persecution comes from the believers willingness to believe and live their lives in Christ before a watching world there's not much danger if you keep your mouth shut. There's not much danger if you keep a low profile. There's not so much danger if you go along to get along. So I think that for my name's sake means something way more than just a willingness to believe in Jesus and live for Jesus before a watching world. I think that it means when a person loves Jesus, believes in Jesus, and lives for Jesus, that the name of Jesus means everything that that name stands for and everything that Jesus has taught. So high on Satan's to-do list is to silence you. And if necessary, stamp out Christ's message delivered by Christ's servants. We live in a world where there's a growing resentment towards the believer who upholds God's standards of, of love and righteousness. We live in a world that, like I said, celebrates sin instead of mourning it, condemns righteousness instead of walking in it. The world can't stand the Lord Jesus' standards of righteousness and godliness and personal purity. We live in a world governed by fleshly lust, personal desire, and what some have called 
moral fluidity. But what happens when a believer decides to walk in the spirit, dress modestly, exercise personal purity? What happens when you want to live in decency and communicate respectfully and desire peace and insist on justice? The world hates the message of repentance from sin. The world hates the message that you should believe in Jesus and exercise a life of selflessness and and self-denial. Even Christians struggle with the message and with the spirit-filled life. Even Christians find it difficult to even exercise the most modest discipleship. Many Christians would rather stay home and watch TV than go to Bible study. Most Christians will never share their faith. Most Christians will live in a perpetual state of superficial participation in the things of God, the plan of God. Jesus has already hinted in Matthew chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, but beware men, for they will deliver you up to the councils. They will scourge you in their synagogues. You shall be brought before governors, kings, for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles, unquote. These are Jewish believers brought before Jews and Gentiles for my sake. That is, for a testimony against them. In what sense? In the sense that no one, no one, no one will be able to stand before God and say, I had no idea. I had no idea that I was a sinner. I had no idea that I was in need of a savior. I had no idea that something was horribly and terribly wrong with me. Because nobody told me. And the ongoing repetition in the New Testament and the Bible is that people won't be able to stand before God and find excuse. John Stone Stone Street, my friend at Breakpoint, writes, quote, this is just a few days ago, Open Doors USA reports that last year, speaking of 2016, was the worst year on record for global religious persecution. You want to know what the worst year was before that? 2015. Do you want to know what was the worst year before that? 2014. One report by the Center for Studies on New Religions put the range of Christians killed for their faith in the last year in the tens of thousands and concluded that as many as 600 million people were prevented from practicing their faith through intimidation, forced conversion, bodily harm, death. North Korea tops the list of offenders collectively. And if we were to take the next greatest portion of of countries that are exercising profound religious persecution, it's the Islamic countries, most notably Saudi Arabia, Pakistan. Persecutions continue in China, in India, in Russia. And the persecutions in the early church were devastating. But they serve to sift the saints from the ain'ts. 
The present persecution should bring us to our knees as we intercede for our brothers and sisters in prisons all over the world. We're instructed by Jesus to expect persecution, to prepare for persecution. In verse 10, he talks about this dissension and and division. It says, and then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Here's part of the, what's going on. Under intense persecution, the growing persecution will cause many, note, to be offended. The word could be translated stumbled. Persecution tests our will and our resolve. Here's what Jesus says. Many, not few, Many will abandon Christianity, will betray one another, will do anything that it takes to avoid persecution or prosecution. So what would cause a Christian to betray Christ? What would cause a Christian to betray another Christian and other groups of believers Jesus offers the explanation to avoid persecution, to save your own life, to secure your own favor, to get what you want. Clearly, there are lots of reasons why people find themselves in difficulty and will betray Jesus and betray other Christians. It could be something as mild as to escape embarrassment or to escape fear, or to preserve selfish honor. It's going to take place before the day is out for some of you. Some of you are going to go to school on Monday morning, and the subject is going to come up, and the opportunity for you to exercise and embrace Jesus, or stand for Jesus, or witness for Jesus, and some of us are going to ignore those opportunities. Jesus says, with the growing persecutions, with the growing numbers of people offended and betraying each other is going to come an increase of deeper divisions as people begin to separate. Jesus says we can expect many to hate one another. The Roman historian Tacitus gives us a hint, even in the early church's condition, when they were going through their profound and severe persecutions, Tacitus wrote, quote, first those were seized who confessed that they were Christians. And on their information, a vast multitude were convicted, unquote. In other words, Christians were rounded up. Not only were they forced into positions of difficulty, then they were forced to disclose who else were Christians. Paul predicts an increase in intensification of divisions, schisms, that this is going to, again, grow in frequency and intensity. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Know this, that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, 
unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control. Another way of saying that is, I just couldn't help myself. I had to do it. He describes them as brutal, despisers of what is good. He uses the very strong term, traitors, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It seems like an absolute description of the popular culture. And then Jesus talks about false leaders in verse 11. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament are full of warnings about false prophets. You can look in 2 Kings 3.13, Isaiah 44.25, Jeremiah 23 verse 16. The list goes on and on and on. In short, a false prophet claims to speak for God. In the moment that the false prophet says, I have a message and my message is from God. And they're trying to convince you that their message is from God. In the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament, the false prophet would say what people wanted to hear rather than God's message. Over and over again, the examples are given as Israel faces almost profound and immediate judgment for its persistent willingness to not honor and not obey God. And the prophets would come and they would beg them, basically, to turn from their sin, to repent, to trust the Lord, to embrace him, to love him, to serve him. But then the false teachers would say, there's no problem. There's no issue. The false teacher would proclaim a false message. But with the false message comes a false hope. Jesus warns us not to believe their false message or embrace the false hope. As a matter of fact, John, writing in 1 John chapter 4, verse, chapter 4, verse 1, says... Rather, we should test the spirits to see whether or not they're from God. We have to evaluate what is being said in light of what God has said and Christ has said and the Bible says. So what makes a false prophet a false prophet? The false prophet makes false claims, preaches a false gospel, promotes a false Christ, promotes a false hope. That is, in their twisted and perverted message, note what Jesus says. And they will deceive, well, only a few. That's not what the text says. They'll deceive many. Last week, we talked about that. No one's really going to fall for a Korean Messiah, right? When the Bible says he's got to be the son of David. I mean, he's, the genealogy proves that whoever the Messiah is, he has to be offspring of Abraham, offspring of Judah, offspring of David. And then when the, the temple records destroy the genealogical records, certainly no one's going to stand up and say, I'm the Messiah, and people will believe it, right? Wrong. No one's really going to fall for the false prophet's message, when it clearly 
contradicts the revelation of God and the character of God and the word of God. Nobody's going to believe it, right? Wrong. People will attach themselves, listen carefully, to teachers rather than Christ. They'll attach themselves to something other than the Bible and the message of the Bible and the gospel. Or people want to embrace pleasure and avoid pain. And so the false teacher introduces at first little compromises and then plays hard and fast with the truth. False teachers teach what people want to hear rather than what the Bible actually says in a frantic search for pleasure and in order to find religious reasons to promote selfishness, religious reasons to promote greed, religious reasons to support that which is false, people will believe a lie. The false teachers are not only outside the church, they're within the church. And so the Bible teaches that their numbers are going to decrease. No. Their number is going to increase. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1. 1 Timothy 6, 3, where it says, they're not going away. You'll remember in, in John 14, Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. But the false teacher will say, what if there's another way? What if I can present to you an alternative truth? What if I can provide for you your best life ever? I, you can have everything that you want. You don't have to live a life of selflessness. You don't have to live a life of sacrifice. You don't have to live a life of submission and obedience to Jesus. False teachers will sometimes provide signs and wonders. They'll even provide power and reason and logic and knowledge to persuade you of their outrageous claims. Tim Chalice is an author and a blogger. He was featured at our church um, a few years back at his website, chalice.com. He's posted an article entitled, false teachers and their deadly doctrines. In short, he reminds his readers that false doctrine confuses the truth and error, while sound doctrine distinguishes truth from error. False doctrine prevents godliness. Sound doctrine promotes godliness. False doctrine promotes sin. Sound doctrine prevents sin. False doctrine elevates godly leadership. Sound doctrine qualifies godly leadership. False doctrine permits false teachers. Sound doctrine protects against false teachers. False doctrine removes God's blessing. While sound doctrine ensures God's blessing. False doctrine debilitates the church in times of difficulty, while sound doctrine equips the church in times of difficulty. That's the connection. 
It isn't simply that we want sound doctrine. We want sound doctrine in times of difficulty because the repeated warnings that Jesus gives is that difficulties will come. And so he talks about certain apostasy. Look at verse 12. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. The false teacher with their false teaching promoting a false hope promotes loose living. Moral ambiguity or what my friend Don Vino calls moral fluidity. The expression lawlessness in, in the Greek language is anomia. The word a is what's called the negative prefix like atheist, no God. Agnostic, I don't know. Anomia, no law. In other words, you disconnect from the revelation of God given in what constitutes the way that we should conduct ourselves and behave around one another. He says that lawlessness will abound. It means that individuals, whole cultures, will disconnect from God's revelation of how we should act and how we should behave. But think about this disconnection. It's in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. The disconnect says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's no God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness upon the face of the deep. And the spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. The atheist and the agnostic will tell you that all of the physical processes that take place in our universe are disconnected from a supernatural being. And that this supernatural being, in fact, did not create man and woman in a garden. But you're the product of evolutionary forces over a long period of time. When the Bible says he made it a male and female, he created them. At Google, you can come up with 17 different gender choices. It doesn't matter that the Bible says male and female. It doesn't matter that biology supports male and female. It doesn't matter in the culture in which we live because if you can disconnect from God and disconnect from the revelation of God, then all of a sudden there is no such thing as a revelation and you're free to do whatever you want to do. With this freedom, false teachers give sinners permission to continue in their sin, celebrate their sin. There's an ever-increasing loss of love for God and affection for God. Loss of love for affection in your family, among your children. As love for God grows cold, Love for one another grows cold. And so there's a permission, a constant preoccupation with self. Self-desire makes love for others increasingly difficult. For the person who is absolutely and fundamentally in love with themselves, they won't have very much room for you. The word abound translates a very large Greek word, it's play, thu, ne, e, nea. 
It's a compound word that has a root, a prefix, and a suffix. The word means to increase or multiply to the point where it begins to overflow. And so the picture, and when he says, and because lawlessness will abound, it's, it's a picture of license run wild, ever increasing wickedness, a departure from God, growing in a glacier that chills the human heart and then spills over in the individual's life and the family's life and the culture's life and the nation's life. Jesus says in Revelation 3.16, because you're neither, because you're lukewarm, because you're neither hot nor cold, I'll spew you out of my mouth. And then he talks about endurance. Look at verse 13. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. With severe persecution comes the temptation to give up on Jesus and Christianity. False teachers invent a false gospel of self-pleasure, self-love, self-indulgence, self-satisfaction. A deep divide takes place as people try to stay true to Christ and Christ's gospel while others abandon essential and biblical Christianity. Hatred and animosity deepen the divide. Times of trouble sift Chaff from wheat, the true believer from the make-believer. And so when he says, so when he says, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Is this the Bible teaching salvation by endurance? No. The Bible has always taught that you're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, lest any person should boast. So what's happening in the text? Jesus is teaching that in the last days... It's going to bring about a series of circumstances that will test believers, test their endurance. And as their believers are being tested and their endurance is being tested, it's a sure sign that the gospel is true, that Jesus is real, that your life has been changed fundamentally, irrevocably by the person of Christ. So what is Jesus saying? Trial, severe trial, severe testing sifts the true believer from the make-believer. In this time of severe testing, people will be tempted to turn their back on Christ. So he's basically saying, don't do it. Stand firm. On Wednesdays, we're teaching through the book of Ephesians. In the last three weeks, I've talked about remember your blessings from God the Father. Remember your benefits in Christ Jesus the Lord. Remember your belongings by the power of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. When you find yourself in trouble, remember what the Father has done for you. Remember what the Son has done for you. Remember the power that's been given to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. So endurance and salvation can't mean the absence of affliction or the loss of affection from those we hold dear. You mean you can be saved? Yes. Is it possible that you're saved? People don't want to be your friend anymore. Even family members don't want to have anything to do with you. Jesus has already indicated that some will be killed in verse 9. The believer who stands firm through Listen, persecution, hatred, betrayal, division, 
false teaching, deception, lawlessness, immorality. How do you keep fervent love in the presence of all of those things? Fervent love is only going to be possible as you commit to Christ and you commit to each other. Because there will come a time when it could very well be that Jesus is all you have. So make sure that you have the opportunity to connect with one another. Love one another. Be responsible to one another. Pray for one another. The believer who stands firm in all of those things keeps fervent love. Listen carefully. Shall be saved. Why? Because they're already saved. That's what a, that's what a believer does. Maintains love in the midst of persecution, hatred, betrayal, division, false teaching, deception, lawlessness, immorality. The believer says, I'm going to love Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm embracing Jesus. I'm obeying Jesus. And look what it says in verse 14, global evangelism. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Jesus predicts this gospel of the kingdom, this is Christ's kingdom, will be preached throughout the world as a witness testimony to the nations. The text doesn't say, and the whole world will believe. It doesn't say that. You could talk about Jesus to your family and your friends. They may not believe. You may talk about Jesus to your neighbors, but they may not believe. You may talk about Jesus in the culture and the society, and they may not believe. But Jesus says the gospel will be preached. Note what Jesus says. Then the end will come. These signs precede the end. After the resurrection of Jesus, he told his disciples in Luke 24, 46 through 48, quote, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance and the remission of sins should be preached to, in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem and you are witnesses of these things. The New Testament is a revelation that there was a Jesus who came back to life and his disciples saw it and they touched him and believed him and they spoke the gospel in Judea in, in Jerusalem Judea Samaria and then the uttermost parts of the earth in Matthew 28 18 it says all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth go therefore and make disciples of the nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Jesus reminds us that as we see the signs and experience the signs, and some of us live the signs, 
that Jesus is with us. The disciples were tasked with the job of evangelism to the nations. It remains our mission. Jesus doesn't talk about the end times simply for the sake of satisfying the disciples' curiosity in verse 3. Tell us when this is going to be and what will the signs be for the person who's totally interested in end-time theology and eschatology and who want to know all about it, good for you. But if all you want to do is know and it doesn't change your life, and it doesn't change your heart. And it doesn't prepare your heart. If it all, you, all it does is satisfy your curiosity, then something is missing. If you want to know about it because you just want to know about it, or you want to know whether or not premillennial, pre-tribulational eschatology, which I embrace as true, good for you. But clearly the task of evangelism looms large and seems to have been largely ignored in the end times debate. Once again in our own time we pray God will awaken in our hearts a sense of the urgency of spreading the gospel of salvation to everyone. The gospel is banned. In North Korea. I have a friend who left China, was snuck across the North Korean border. They couldn't take Bibles across. If they, would, if they find you with a Bible, they will just simply shoot you in the head. People who try to get onto the Temple Mount right at this very moment, Bibles are banned from the Temple Mount. But I guess I shouldn't even say this, but I'm going to say it. For some reason, the Arab authorities don't realize that with the miracle of modern technology, you can put your Bible on your phone. Phones aren't banned. So people who have the Bible on their phone go back up to the Temple Mount, and there they are on the Temple Mount reading their Bible. In North Korea, in Saudi Arabia, are cell phones banned? That the answer is no. Can you put your Bible on your cell phone? Yes. Is it a problem if they catch you? Yes. But do you know what Jesus is saying? The gospel. The gospel is unstoppable. The gospel will be preached. Wait a minute. It's banned in North Korea. It's, it's banned in, in Pakistan and parts of eastern India and in many homes. Now think about it. There are homes in your neighborhood where people don't have a Bible in their home. And they don't want a Bible in their home. Our schools are desperately trying to get rid of the Bible. In severe trial and affliction, punishing persecutions, people are going to falsify it, delude it, deny it. In spite of apostasy, the gospel is going to be preached. False teachers, the gospel continues to be preached. Growing lawlessness, increasing lovelessness, people who deny it, the gospel is going to be preached. In spite of apostasy, in spite of false teachers, in spite of lawlessness and lovelessness, the word of grace, the gospel of God, the testimony of the Holy Spirit, it's going to be preached. People want to ignore it, deny it, and hate it. But there are going to be people who are going to still say, did you know that 
God loves you, that Jesus loves you? Do you know that a real Jesus lived a real life, that he died on a real cross and then he came back to life? In Romans chapter 10, verse 18, we understand it says, But I say, have you not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went to all the earth, their words to the end of the world. It says that the gospel which came to you as in all the world, Colossians 1.16, the gospel which you have heard and which was preached to under every creature under heaven, Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. The preaching of the gospel serves as a witness, as a witness to the nation. And that must mean at least two things. That the gospel itself is the witness. It proclaims the, the truth about God. The will of God for human beings. The gospel reveals where we came from. Where we are. Where we're going. This gospel is called the record. And this is the record, it says in 1 John chapter 5, 11, That God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son, and that he who has the Son has life. It doesn't say he who has religion has life. He who has Protestantism or Roman Catholicism or the proper eschatology, the person who has life is the person who has Jesus. And the end has to refer to the end of Jerusalem and the end of the world. The scripture says that the gospel has to be preached to the world. Before the fall of Jerusalem. And you know what? Jerusalem has already fallen in 70 AD. And I'm going to suggest to you that there's a future fall that's going to take place. Many are called, but few are chosen. The gospel heard doesn't convert. But the gospel believed is what changes the heart. Just quickly before we close. There are 7.3 billion people in the world, according to the Joshua Project. 2.3 billion are Christian. 748 million are so-called evangelical Christians. That, according to the Joshua Project. 1.7 billion are Muslim. 1.1 billion are Hindu. 979 million are non-religious. 488 million are Buddhist. 671 million are of ethnic religions, including Chinese religion. 103 million others are a vast product of paganism, animism, or other unknown groups. Of the 7.3 billion people in the world, 3 billion live among unreached people groups of the world. 1.6 billion are completely unevangelized. According to the Joshua Project, there are 6,510 languages in the world. People groups are what Bible scholars believe refer to in many mission-oriented verses of groups of people. Go to the nations. Matthew 28, 19. Matthew 24, 14, which we're going to talk about next week. Revelation 7, 9. According to one database, there are 16,562 people uh, 16,562 people groups in the world. Of these people groups, 9,715 have been reached with the gospel message, meaning that 6,847 people groups remain unreached with the gospel. 
To be unreached means that less than 2% of evangelical Christians that the sizable proportion thought to be needed to reach their own people. That's according to the Joshua Project. 86% of all unreached people group lie in what the Bible, what, what mission people and, and evangelists call the 1040 window. The 1040 window is 10 and 40 degrees north from the west coast of Africa to the east coast of Asia. In AD 100, there were 360 people for every believer. Now there are 7.3 people for every believer. We've made progress. In AD 100, there were 12 unreached people groups for every congregation of believers. Now there's one unreached people group for every 1,000 congregations. 90% of foreign missions work is among people who have already been reached. 10% of work are among unreached people groups. Despite Christ's command to evangelize, 67% of all humans from AD 30 to the present time have never, ever heard the name of Jesus. 91% of all Christian outreach evangelism doesn't target non-Christians, it targets Christians. In the last 40 years, over a billion people have died who have never heard of Jesus and around 30 million people this year will perish without hearing about salvation. 70,000 people die every year without Jesus. Not necessarily without hearing, but without Jesus. So why would Jesus talk about this? What must we do? How can we reflect? On his words. How can we say to ourselves, you know, this is all fascinating and all interesting, and then refuse to actually begin to think about the ramifications of what we're talking about? How is it that we can ignore his warning? The last days are going to be marked by increasing apostasy, verses 4 and 5 and 11. Rise of false Christ, verse 5. False prophets leading people astray, verse 11. Increasing periods of anarchy, verses 6 and 8. Hot, cold wars. Afflictions, verses 9 and 10. Apathy, verses 12 and 13. But then there are saints. There are saints who hold on. Who believe with all their heart. And live their life as if this is true that God has reserved a remnant in each generation to preach the gospel, to reach the lost, because our king is coming. And so you will stand firm and stand fast. And if you stand firm and stand fast, then you will last. So much more. I got to stop. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, awaken in our hearts a keen desire to exercise discernment, to hear the warning and believe the warning, to prepare for affliction disappointment, persecution, 
but all the while remembering that we are a part of a group of people who have experienced profound difficulty and have chosen to stand firm. Lord, we know that it's going to take way more than just simply the choice to stand firm. That, Lord, we're going to need all of the resources necessary in order to do all that you've asked us to do. In order to remain faithful. To exercise and demonstrate love. And then share Christ. It's going to take courage. And a willingness. Not so much to know everything about everything. But at least to know the most important thing. That there's a real God. With a clear revelation. That this gospel is true. That there are people who need the Savior. No wonder Paul said, how can they hear unless someone is sent? And so, Lord, we pray, like Isaiah, a long ago. Perhaps we would entertain the notion that perhaps you might send me. And so, Lord, again, we pray that we wouldn't ignore our opportunities that we wouldn't just simply dismiss in the face of all of the difficulty the opportunities that lie before us. Lord, we pray that we would take advantage of the people that you've placed in our life. Not to manipulate them and not to aggravate them and not to alienate them. Lord, we pray that we would be men and women with a word fitly spoken, like apples of gold and settings of silver. We pray that we could preach the gospel in the most winsome way that we might win some. (laughs) And so, Lord, again, we pray that you would renew us, embolden us, encourage us for the task at hand. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, ladies and gentlemen.